In Belgium, a beer tour can be a highlight of your visit. They do beer tours in the city where you can go to authentic bars where you stand still on a 16th, 17th century wooden floor and you drink at the glasses you know, they've been using for centuries. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, tour guides from Europe join us to talk up their home turf and to help you get started looking up your ancestors in the old country. Stay with us for highlights of the low countries, where there is rarely a language barrier, and hear how getting to know the region, from Flanders to Flevoland, can be fun. Linger behind one of those beers, and then you really get people talking. And in Ireland, the pub conversation might include meeting a distant relative for the first time, or even finding your last name in the most surprising places. We traced his name. His name is inscribed on the church bell of my hometown. We discovered that his ancestors were the sovereigns of Kinsale. Join us as we do a little digging under the family tree. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We've drafted a couple of Belgian-born tour guides to bring us the highlights of the Low Countries today on Travel with Rick Steves. And don't be surprised to meet a few beer pilgrims along the way. And since being Irish is one of the most common ethnic backgrounds for Americans, two guides from Ireland will join us to help you get started researching your family lineage in Ireland, both North and South. First, let's check in with a couple of listeners who wrote us about their own experiences looking up ancestors in Europe. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com in case you'd like to share your own travel stories. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Give us a brief account of what's made your travels interesting, and we just might call you back to tell us all about it on the show. Kay's on the phone from Florence, Arizona. Hi, Kay. Hi. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Well, I went to Sweden, and I was able to find my relatives over there be able to tour around the homes that they lived in, find their grave sites. Now, how did you look up your relatives? Did you know them before, or was it just out of the blue? We have been into genealogy for a number of years and been looking, and we had found family over there but had never visited with them. So once I decided that I would make that trip back over there exactly 100 years after my great-grandfather came here... Wow. Um, I contacted them, let them know that we were coming to visit, and it went extremely well. My goodness. Now, so you were going back to the old country in Sweden. You found relatives, and did they know about you, or, or how did that work? When I had contacted them by email and exchanged information, the only uh, way that they knew us was just by letters for a very short time. Now, did you take advantage of any of these immigration centers? I know in Vekwa, in uh, glass country there um, in southern Sweden, where they've had more uh, per capita emigration than almost any place in Europe. That was the whole exodus out of, out of Sweden when it was such a tough place to live back in the 19th century. And they've got very, very um, helpful uh, research centers that American Swedes can go and look up their roots. Did you take advantage of anything like that? I did. I went to Vekwa and uh, went into uh, the research center there, and they were able to print me out pages with some of my family history and uh, where they were buried, where they had lived, and also where they had left the country Wow! and what ship they had taken. What did you need to bring there in order for them to help you out? Just your name? or I've heard you need to know the ship they took off on or something like that. You really don't need to know the ship. All you need is the name, um, their birth dates, and if it's, say, it was my great-great-grandfather and his sister that came, his his father's name, and they were able to take it way back for me just with that information. Now, is this a government-subsidized service, or is this a profit-making thing where a, an American Swede would actually pay a lot of money to have the opportunity to get into their database? You do have to pay for information, but it is not that extensive. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, this time when I went over, I had a friend with me, and he took just very little information about his family, and they, for about $60, were able to give him all kinds of information about his family, also born in Sweden. And does that tell you where the ancestors of those emigrants who did stay in Sweden, where they are living now, and how you can look them up? You can travel that information forward and find them, yes, and and they're very helpful. There's no security concerns about that? They just give you those names and you can give them a phone call? They gave them information and let them get a hold of us. Ah, that's how it works. But I would suppose, unless you're a real jerk, that your relatives would want to get in touch with you. Oh, sure. 
Oh, that's great. Did you watch The Immigrants in the New Land, those two wonderful movies, before going to Sweden? I did. Yeah, I just think if you're a Swede going back to the old country, don't you agree you've got to see that doubleheader movie? You really do, and it gives you an insight into what they went through yes, um, just getting here. We can't imagine. My grandparents came from Norway, and you know they homesteaded up in Edmonton, Alberta, and mm-hmm. they came over here not speaking a word of English. And two generations, exactly. I don't speak a word of Norwegian. Talk about quick assimilation. <laughs> it's very interesting, and I've met all of my living cousins over there now. Okay, so you're and, a, you're a Swede, a Swedish American after a couple of generations here. What surprises did you have about the culture when you finally got home for the, you know, the lifestyle and the food and the the traditions? There wasn't a lot of differences. They are very much more family oriented than we seem to be these days here in America. Hmm. They are very very well educated, every one of them. And that is because their government helps them out. They're all college educated. They're driven, I, I guess, by their heritage um, to make a better place for themselves. Uh, their homes are uh, very green, very eco-friendly. Hmm. And that surprised me how, how much. Would you say the parenting was strict and disciplinary, or is the parenting sort of uh, loosey-goosey? No, I think they're very strict. At least in in uh, my relatives that I visited, right. they're very very family oriented and very strict. They do a lot of things together, a lot more than I see families here doing together. So I, I think in every country there are emigration centers. I think the Swedes are some of the very best. And if you happen to be Swedish American, you go to this town called Växjö. And uh, do you remember how to spell it? It's V A X J O. And it's pronounced Växjö. And that's in the middle of glass country, in the middle of emigration country. Uh, and that's where you had like half of the population leaving the country back in the 1800s, going to America because it was so tough to live there. And uh, those who stayed have quite a story to tell. And those who left, uh, their ancestors can come back and go to the immigration center and, and get a line on their relatives and have an intimate experience back in the old country. They can. Okay, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. We're tracking family roots in Ireland in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're checking in with listeners who have their own family history to report from their travels. Gary's on the line in Vancouver, Washington. Gary, thanks for your call. Oh, hello, Rick. Well, first I want to say I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Uh, my name is Coxtus. Uh, it's a Lithuanian name. Father's from Lithuania, so is my grandfather. And there's always been stories that have been missed in our family about how my grandfather arrived in the United States. He actually arrived on Labor Day, 1909. Hmm. And we've always wondered about our Lithuanian family or cousins. Was there anybody over there? Right. We did have some letters from 1959-1960 addressed to my dear brother and signed by a lady named Veronica Galanowskis. So this was in the 50s? This was in the 50s. So that would be 50 years or so after yeah. the family left Lithuania for America. Yes, after my grandfather All left. Right. So he's been contacting his sister during that time period. And th- these are very interesting letters. Of course, they're in the, the middle of the Soviet occupation, as Lithuanians call it. Yeah. And she's describing her life and times in the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic and the winters and and her troubles on the collective farm. But she also mentioned that she had uh, her children's names, and more importantly, we had a return address. In Lithuania, it's kind of the pin on the map of where to look. Thankful for the Internet now, we contacted actually a family researcher in Lithuania, and we asked him, can you find these people? Can you find our family? From the address you picked up in the 50s? Yeah, we sent him copies of the, mm-hmm. of the letters. Mm-hmm. And about three or four weeks later, he emailed back, um, you have family in Lithuania. He said you got, you got family in Lithuania. Family in Lithuania. That's, like, that's one of those OMGs, oh my God. <laughs> also, my surname, there's always been talk of where the missing letters were. Kokstas. Uh, yeah, Kokstis. Kokstis. Now... He replied back, and the U came back that was missing for 100 years. Because and some guy at Ellis Island just tried to anglicize it or something, Americanize yeah. it? Yeah. It, so it actually is pronounced Kuakshtis. Oh, well, thank goodness it got simplified. <laughs> so it was shortened. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you get back there to Lithuania? Actually, we did. He put us in contact with the family, 
And so we're emailing back and forth with the various English language speakers there. And then we finally said, okay, surprise, we're coming to visit. So this was in October of last year. 20 years after freedom. 20 years after freedom, yes. And so we planned our trip out and uh, planned five days with our new family. And was it worth all the trouble and excitement? Oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. I mean, their family also had these rumors of past history of they had relatives in America. The first connection in almost exactly 100 years of That's the right. family. Wow. It's yeah. a beautiful thing you're able to reconnect. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was great. So um, did they, uh, like, whip you up a great meal and dress up in traditional costumes, or what was the deal? Oh, no. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, we were waiting at our, our motel for my cousins to arrive, and then this young lady arrived with these three big bodyguards. It wow. appeared to be, but it turned out it was her husband and her two, two brothers-in-law. Oh, that's good, because I, uh, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, you might have family that's Russian mafia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah there's a, still a suspicion left over from the Soviet era, mm-hmm. where you, you don't really trust anybody to you know what's going on. Yeah, I've noticed that across the former Soviet Union, where yeah. uh, all these uh, because they have a heritage where you know the government was bribing people to tell on each other. You couldn't even trust your relatives. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So we went to um, my cousin Stefania's house, and oh my gosh, there is about twenty people in there, and the movie cameras going, and the snacks are put out on the table, and everybody said hello in their best English, which yeah. I, I think they just learned some of it. <laughs> In anticipation of your visit. Yes, and practice. Hello. Yeah. Hello, my name is. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, the best English speaker was, uh, she was 15 years old. So what did you, was it awkward? What did you do when you're sitting with relatives that you can't speak with? It, it was like a family reunion to them also. Yeah. So they were talking amongst themselves ah. and telling stories. And Ramuna, the translator, finally she said, I'm sorry, there's three different conversations going on. I ah, don't know you had a translator. That was smart. Yeah. Well, this was the 15-year-old. Oh, the 15-year-old. Okay. He was the translator. I think it would have been smart to just hire a translator to come in there and uh, make sure everybody could talk. But at least you got the 15-year-old. Oh, yeah. She was very That's well. great. They're teaching English in school now. Of course, you know, it used to be Russian. Right. As their primary second yeah. language. Yeah. Did you get the sense that things are coming together for that economy and that culture? Uh, yes. They're a Fairly westernized country. Because it's the poor, uh, the poor country of the three Baltic states, I believe. Mm, yes. Sort of the rural, you know, uh, rustic, a little bit behind compared to uh, Latvia and Estonia. Yeah, but they actually have everything that we have here in the West. Well, it must have been a great experience for you, Gary. Thanks for your call. Okay. Okay, bye now. All right, bye. <laughs> Tips for looking up your ancestors in Ireland. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. A lot of Americans in their travels want to trace their roots, go back to the old country and see where great-great-grandma came from. And I suppose the little country in Europe that's had the biggest impact in that regard is Ireland. So many Americans count themselves as Irish heritage, and they want to go back to Ireland and find out all about their forefathers. I'm joined by two Irish tour guides who've spent quite a bit of time with Americans in Ireland, tracking down their family roots, Stephen McPhillamy and Barry Maloney. 
Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. So Ireland really is unique in the, in the diaspora, isn't it? We're a tiny nation on the fringe of Europe, uh, 5 million people on the island, yet you have this diaspora of anything up to 80 million globally, but in the United States, it's estimated that there's 44 million Americans of Irish descent. 15%, one out of every six or seven Americans counts themselves as Irish. Aye, and so, so that's, that's there for the taking. It's there for us to exploit. It's there for us to welcome this diaspora back. You know that Ireland is in serious financial trouble. It's going to be more important to our travel industry in future. This is true. This could be a big part of the tourism industry in Ireland. 40 million potential visitors from the United States. Very true. Our first female president, Mary Robinson, she actually embraced that diaspora in her, right. in her acceptance speech. How did she embrace the diaspora? She quoted W.B. Yeats and she said, come dance with me in Ireland. So she invited them to come back. And do you notice that there's a lot of Americans coming back? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I would imagine you might even have a cynical attitude about these people who don't know the first thing about Ireland and here they come, these you know, loud-talking Yankees. Yeah, I think there is a huge cynicism maybe even a healthy one, about Americans coming back. What would the cynicism be no, based I wouldn't on? even say it's cynicism. It's just some people joke about them. They're like, oh, God, here's the Yanks coming back. Would you look at these people talking about their great-great-great-grandpa in Tipperary or something? And so some Irish people laugh at that a lot. And We have an economist at home called David McWilliams, and he's saying, look, Israel, for example, cherishes its diaspora. Now we should do the same. We're in financial dire straits. These people have got goodwill towards Ireland. Yeah, They've got money you know, let's welcome them back. Let's embrace them just like Israel embraces its diaspora. Let's do the same. So if you want to find your ancestry in Ireland, what do you do? Well, my best advice, Rick, is to start on the American side. I suppose start where the the trail is fresh, really. And there's an important reason for that as well, because in 1922, in our civil war, our public records office was destroyed. A huge explosion. That's devastating for anybody, any country trying to keep track of its roots. Yeah, it was the Irish Republican Army uh, set up their arms store around the public records office and it exploded. And they say, you know, just like confetti, the records landed all across the city up to six, seven, eight miles away. And that means today all that remains really is local church records. Whoa, that's devastating. So you're saying Americans with Irish ancestry might find more information here in the States about their family tree. Yes. If you can start here and work back towards, we'll say, for example, Ellis Island and find a record in Ellis Island whose records are very, very good, I've heard, uh-huh. and becoming available online more so. Uh-huh. In that record, you may hit gold dust by finding a town or a parish where they came from. The with town the local or the records. parish lets you connect with the parish records in Ireland. Yes. Does local. Ireland have some sort of a national census kind of information available online? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And on that point, you see, well, of course, we were ruled by the British until 1922. And for all their faults, the British were great organizers and kept great records. So there are excellent detailed census that we have access to or that your listeners or any American traveler coming over to do their research. There's great records. There may be more than other countries around the world that Americans may be looking to trace their ancestry in. Now, I would imagine a lot of Americans who think they're Irish are actually Scots-Irish. That's true. What are the distinctions there? What should they know about, Barry? Um, Well, when you say the Scots-Irish, what you're referring to is a large mass of people who in the 17th century came from Scotland to live in the north of Ireland. Right. Mostly in the north of Ireland. Ulster, a place known as Ulster. And those people then, when the New World discoveries opened up and they heard of America where the streets are lined with gold, it was much easier for them to uproot from Northern Ireland and... Is it because they had the economic wherewithal? Yes. And also their roots in Ireland weren't that deep. I see. So they were Protestants in a foreign land. It would be easier for them to pick up and go yeah. to America. Than still, still Celtic people though, Rick. Still the same people. So the Scottish, Scottish and the Irish people, yeah. were very close. Right. But you see the crucial point about the Scotch-Irish is over the years, a lot of people have come to me and said, my grandma was Scottish, my great-grandpa was Irish, so I'm Scots-Irish. And I said, to him, look, I hate to burst your bubble, but you're not. That means you're Scottish and you're Irish. The Scotch-Irish are this distinct ethnic group that Barry's just mentioned who came from Scotland in the 1600s, to Ulster for 100 years, and then moved on. But here's two crucial points about the Scots-Irish. They were nearly always Presbyterian, so it's very important to stress that. Mm -hmm. And they nearly always went to the southern United States, uh, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia. Uh, You know, some of the greatest frontiersmen were Scots-Irish. Davy Crockett, his grandparents come from my town. 
Derry. Uh, 17 presidents of the United States have been of Scots-Irish background, from Buchanan to Wilson. From Ulster. Yeah, from Ulster, all, always Ulster. And their roots go back to Scotland. Originally Scotland, yeah. Stephen, when you hear somebody's surname, can you read much into that? Yeah, well, I think I have good skills at telling where someone's from. I mean, if, if someone tells me their surname... I think I've got about a 90% chance of guessing where their ancestry comes from. Like if someone says to me they're an O'Donnell, generally it's Donegal. If they're a Murphy, it's overwhelmingly, chances are they're from Cork. Although there is another tribe of Murphys in South Armagh up in the north, which is much smaller and not related to the southerners. If someone says Lynch, they're Galway and so on. You can get it wrong here and there, but okay, generally so, so you'd be So Barry's right. a Maloney, what does that mean to you? Well, Maloney would, would be a southern Irish name, uh, so straight away you know it's from the south. Maloney, southwest, and I would have said Cork, Limerick, around that general area. Yeah, spot on. Most of the Maloney's would be uh, Limerick. All right, Barry, uh, Stephen's last name is McPhillamy. Yeah, McPhillamy, the Mac, would tend towards the north of Ireland. Uh, I don't well, want to offend Stephen. Well, no, in fairness to him, McPhillamy is <laughs> a very rare, unique name. So, oh, sorry. But it's a, it's a part of the O'Neill clan. If, oh, I, okay. if, if I said yeah, O'Neill okay. to him, he'd tell me exactly. Okay. What would O'Neill mean? O'Neill, well, O'Neill was the closest the Irish came to a high king of Ireland. That's right. That's quite a, a highfalutin name if you're Irish. Then, so O'Neill, I, huh? I suppose I should be bowing down to Steve, really, you know? Well, no need for that, Barry. But just to, <laughs> just, but just to prove the theory, if I said I'm on O'Neill, you would say what county? Oh, Tyrone. And that's where my father's from. So you can see, we're, we're able to tell, we didn't talk about this before the show, our, our clans, our families, never roved too far from their home territory. Right. Maybe it would be like in a, a tribe over here, if someone said they were Navajo or Apache thing, or Mohawk, it? you'd know more or less where they were originally from. Because you mm-hmm. hear a lot of people talking about their family castle, their clan castle yeah. and so on. Very true. Does that relate to that? Oh, yes. The chieftains had a, generally a castle or a seat of power. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel Rick Steves. We're talking with Maloney and McPhillamy here about Ireland and your ancestry. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Cheryl's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Hi, how are you doing? Good, Cheryl. Thanks for calling. Okay, I've traced my family history back to 1805 to a gentleman called Henry Kerr. And so I was calling to find out, is Kerr a common Irish name? And if it is, is it a regional thing associated with a certain region in Ireland? Your ancestry goes back 200 years, and Kerr, K-E-R-R, is the family name. What does that mean to you guys? Yeah, well, both of us would say straight away that we know it's a northern name. Kerr's from the up in County Down. The interesting thing about Kerr, K-E-R-R, is that in Ireland, if someone gives you their surname, you can also tell whether it's Protestant or Catholic. But there's a few little exceptions, and Kerr is one of those where, through intermarriage, it could be Protestant or Catholic. Uh, okay. If he went over in the 1800s, and 1805, I would put my mortgage or my house on it that he would have been a Presbyterian gentleman more than likely because your your overwhelming amounts of Catholic Irish don't start emigrating until the 1830s, 1840s. When you said 1805, is that when he left Ireland? No, that's when he was born in South Carolina. Oh, he was born in South Carolina. Yeah, but I haven't been able to go back any further in than 1805. That, so sure. Yeah, so if he's leaving in the 1700s, 99% chance he was a Scots-Irish Presbyterian. Scots-Irish Presbyterian and, 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 from uh, County Down. Yeah. Do you have any any birth records for him in South Carolina? Yeah, I think what I have is a copy, a digital copy of the census form that they were using at the time. That's where I got the information. Yeah, you see, again, if he was from a northern Presbyterian background over there, the, the records that they have should be pretty good. Um, there's a great website called irishgenealogy.ie. It's a government site, and it's bringing, okay. it's bringing together uh, baptismal records. They've even got uh, hundreds of thousands of gravestone inscriptions scanned. Uh, so there's just so much information there that you can access, and it's free of charge. All right, Cheryl, okay. thanks a lot. Good luck on your quest. Thank you. She's the queen of the county down, the flower of Waraleo. George is on the line in Adkins, Texas. George, thanks for your call. I have uh, had some success in tracing my Irish ancestors. The letter that had been sent to my mother was where I started telling me that my O'Donnell ancestors were from uh, Tipperary and uh, the town that they were from. I had the benefit of uh, living in uh, Germany for a couple of years and was able to make several trips to Ireland and uh, the particular town of Feathered, where I was able to um, find other relatives, both above and below ground. And this past fall, we're able to kind of tie it all together, you know, with a a larger trip that took us to... uh, 
Kinsale, where the O'Donnells were defeated in the 1600s, and then finally to the O'Donnell Castle in uh, Donegal, where our ancestors ultimately came from. The name of our ancestor, who turned out to be the, uh, the 10th chieftain of the O'Donnells. That's incredible. George, have any idea how your, your O'Donnell clan got the whole way from their homeland of Donegal in the northwest down to Tipperary in the centre of Ireland? Yes. Apparently what had happened, uh, the story in Tipperary was that the O'Donnells, my family had come there, had fought at the Battle of Kinsale, and then on the way back to Donegal, knowing that their castle had already been burned there, and since they were defeated, that they would be um, hunted down by the English, they decided that the area of Tipperary they were in wasn't such a bad place. Yeah, I often heard that in folklore, that many of the great O'Neill and the O'Donnell warlords, they were so sort of disgraced at losing that they didn't want to return to Ulster, or they felt that they were threatened. And then you'll see that if you drive through the middle of Ireland, you'll see stores, shops, businesses with O'Neill, O'Donnell. These are northern names. Like, there's a bar in Kinsale, you know, uh, with the Tap Tavern run by Mary O'Neill. Mary O'Neill. Um, O'Neill's are not supposed to live in Kinsale in the deep south of Ireland. They're supposed to be up in the north in Tyrone, where they're from. So it's just an, an, an interesting so after the, accident of after history. after the... Catastrophe for the uh, the Irish cause against the English and the big. What year was the battle in Kinsale? Sixteen oh one. After that, they were they were so uh, slaughtered and disgraced. They didn't even want to go back to the north of Ireland, and they just sort of well, melted, melted into the. Also, Rick, they were the most wanted men in Ireland. That's true. They were right. marked out by Queen Elizabeth as betraying wow. her. Yeah, and so they played their cards. The cards were on the table. You know, they just tried to melt into society then. Yeah, yeah, just become shop owners. Or yeah, well, it was dangerous for them to go north, back to yeah. the north. Uh, George, have you ever seen the Disney movie about the O'Donnells? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. Oh, you? Oh, well, this is... What's it oh, called? It's called The Fighting Prince of Donegal. It was made by Walt Disney back in the 1950s. Wow. Uh, it's about Red Hugh O'Donnell, the greatest O'Donnell chieftain of all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the only real-life Irish person that Walt Disney ever made a movie about. It's about his escape from Dublin Castle as a teenager and his long trek back to Donegal. You'll, you'll have to get it on DVD because you'll be watching it five or ten times. It's wow. really, a really brilliant uh, movie. You might be also interested, just as a little anecdote, Walt Disney's family were supposed to be from County Carlow, not too far away from Tipperary. Uh, mm-hmm. His Irish name was D-apostrophe-I-S-N-E-Y. So he, he had great love for Ireland, Walt Disney. Huh. He also made a great movie called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. <laughs> oh, about, I know that one. Uh, yeah, about <laughs> the leprechauns. All right, George, thanks for your call. Thanks, George. You know, I feel like we're sitting around in a pub here. What a beautiful thing to be able to talk about. Ah, O'Neill, ah, Maloney. And it's the springboard for a wonderful conversation that involves your culture. Yeah, and can you see too, Rick, why a lot of our people in the travel industry in Ireland are saying, let's not not be laughing at these people. Like George there on the phone had a great emotional attachment to Ireland. He's not just coming for a sun and sand holiday or coming for to check out a couple of leprechauns or whatever or drink Guinness he's coming because he has an emotional attachment to Ireland just as much as we have just as much as Barry and I so we should be embracing that because that's real positivity there yeah incredible the impact Ireland has had on this world little island three, four, five million people fewer people now there than in the past right isn't the population of Ireland less now than it was a couple hundred years ago oh yeah I mean pre-famine population was well above eight million Above 8 million. So, so it's about half the population now. Yeah, yeah. We still haven't recovered our, our population. 150 years later, still recovering from that. And then famine, so a lot of people died, a lot of people emigrated. Today, 40 million Irish Americans. True. Like in the, in the 70 years after the famine, 9 million people left Ireland. And that's more than the population that has ever lived in Ireland. And uh, travelers can go back and put that together in the context of their particular families. A lot of Americans are interested in genealogy from all, all cultures, not just from Ireland, but... Ireland is the only country that has had continuous emigration since the 1800s. Like the Swedish would emigrate maybe in the 20s, they'd peak and then they'd stop again. And then you don't see many Swedish emigrating in the 40s. The Dutch would go after their country was destroyed in World War II. You see them emigrating in big numbers. The Germans during the Great Depression, maybe after the First World War, maybe after the Second War, but then it stops. But the Irish, every single year from 1845 onwards, you've got continuous emigration. Two out of every three Irish people born in the last 150 years have died somewhere else. Fascinating. This is so much fun to talk about how Americans can really carbonate their travel experience by checking out their roots wherever they may be. And of course, Ireland is a very, very common destination in this regard. Barry, as a tour guide, what's one of the most gratifying moments you've had showing Americans around Ireland in search of their roots? Well, Rick, just last year I met uh, Steve Ruddock from California. 
and he was coming back to my hometown, Kinsale, tracing his roots. He'd done some research and really he, he had an easy job because Ruddock is a very unusual surname in Ireland of English ancestry originally. But we really hit, hit gold dust on the trail with him because we discovered that his ancestors were the sovereigns of Kinsale, like the mayors of the town, a Norman title. And we traced his name. His name is inscribed on the church bell of our hometown of my hometown. Whoa. And, and he, he was amazed. When he saw that, what did he do? Oh, he was amazed to see that. Well, I mean, he, he couldn't actually go up to the bell, but he met the rector of the church and uh, spoke a lot about Beautiful. it. Beautiful. I presented him with a photograph of it. So his ancestors go back centuries in Ireland and then coming from England before that. Yes, yes. Stephen McPhillamy, what's a moment you have in your work as a tour guide in Ireland when it comes to an American finding their roots in Ireland? Well, my proudest moment helping an American find their roots was two summers ago, a lovely family came on tour with me, a mother and two teenage daughters. Uh, they were African-Americans from one of your major cities. They're from the Midwest, they're from Chicago. And their father had just passed away and their dad was an Irish-American. These two young girls growing up here because of the colour of their skin will be classed always and naturally as African-Americans. So wait a their dad was Irish and their mom was African? Their mom was black, dad was white, but both okay. American. So they were coming to Ireland because they wanted... This, in the society here that they're growing up, they're classed as African-Americans. Everyone perceives them as such. But these two young girls were as much Irish as anybody else. You know, their dad was an Irish-American. Uh, he had passed away. This was their first trip. They always had wanted to come to Ireland with their dad. They had gone to Africa and seen their African heritage. Now they wanted to come to Ireland, but sadly their dad passed away. He died of cancer before the trip. He deteriorated pretty rapidly. So for me, for two weeks, I was exposing them to their heritage, their music, their culture, their dancing. And I got a letter from their mum afterwards just saying, I really wanted to thank you because my young girls growing up, everyone puts them into the category of African-Americans. They're very proud of that, but they're equally proud of their Irishness and you give them a chance to be exposed to that pride. And that made me feel very proud that our diaspora is not just white and Catholic, it's as much Protestant, it can be black, it can be anything. This is a huge diaspora, and that was my proudest moment. Stephen McPhillamy, Barry Maloney, thanks so much for inspiring our listeners and inspiring me to give a little more thought to tracking our ancestry from wherever it may originate. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Slancha. <laughs> <laughs> Man is alive. Alive and Next up, we'll head for the continent with the help of two Belgian-born guides. Prepare yourself for the highlights of the Low Countries. 877-333-7425. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. Ik ben Rolinka Bloeming uit Amsterdam en ik reis graag met Rick Steves. In Dutch, that is, I'm Rolinka Bloeming from Amsterdam and I love to travel with Rick Steves. And in Dutch, ik ben Rolinka Bloeming uit Amsterdam en ik reis graag met Rick Steves. Dank u wel. When you were in school, you might have seen them referred to as the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Little Luxembourg. Squeezed in between mighty France and Germany, they're often overlooked by tourists. But as the host to so much of the earliest action that gave rise to the European Union, and with Brussels as the center of much of the EU's authority, this region is not to be underestimated. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, let's find out how this corner of Europe that's also called the Low Countries really stands tall as one of the most influential, innovative, and well-organized corners of the continent. Joining us to better appreciate the Low Countries are two Belgian-born friends of mine who've been guiding visitors around their homeland for years. Nina Derrick specializes in gourmet food adventures, and Ferdinando Mengi leads tours all over the area. Ferdi and Nina, thanks for joining us. Hi. Nice to be here. You both speak Flemish, right? Yeah. That's Flemish. right. Yeah. Flemish. How do you say good day in, in Flanders? Hallo. Goeiedag. Goeiedag. Goeiedag, yeah. Goeiemorgen. Goeiedag. So first of all, when we talk about Belgium, it's a country that's split between two ethnic groups. Absolutely. Um, mainly between the Flemish in the north and then the Walloons in the south, so the French-speaking people of Belgium. But we can't forget a German community in the east of Belgium as well. That's 70,000 people. 70,000, and that's a good reminder that you cannot just draw a line 
and say French people here and German people there. There's always a little bit of fuzziness, isn't there? There is. And that's where mainly the problems are in the bold regions where the Walloons meet the Flemish mainly. It's not only because of, of us. I mean, I think the average people have, are getting along very well. It's the politicians. They, they don't get along well. And that's the, that's the problem right now. Now, when we think about the uh, split of Belgium, it sort of is where, where the north and the south of Europe comes together, isn't it? There's the, the Romance languages and the Catholic heritage, and then there is the Protestant and the Germanic languages in the north. And this is sort of a cultural fault line that runs right across between France and Germany, between right. Germany and Italy, and in the far west, you actually split Belgium this way. Yes, Yes, it's kind of, if you look up on Belgium, and Nina knows this as well, I mean, it's like you can see the the line in between the north and the south. Now, I would say that even, you can even see that in the art, because historically, the big patrons of the art would have been the kings and the emperors and the popes and the bishops, and that would be characteristic of southern art. And in the north, you've got more merchant communities and proud Protestant, you know, freedom from church government and this sort of thing. And that would show itself in the sort of the, the natural patrons of the art would shape the kind of art you're going to see. Well, look at the Golden Age. I mean, the northern uh, part of that part, uh, northern Belgian, Holland, you know, that area, the Golden Age, all that fantastic uh, that's art. All, that that's all merchant's art. All merchant's art. You don't exactly. see many saints nope. or emperors. Nope, all merchants. You remember if you go to Amsterdam, for example, and you see that, that Rijks Museum, you don't see any... Religion, it all, it's all moved back to the back, and it's in the front is what happened, the and, merchants and, and stuff. And in the front, you've got your nice food, your yeah. nice silverware, yeah. Your, yeah. All, the, all the riches that you earned because you you're earned. a good capitalist. Exactly. Yeah, I would say, too, that um, Flanders is definitely more of an agricultural mm-hmm. background, a farmer's culture, and the Dutch exactly. are not much more known as the merchant culture. And uh, for us, it's a little, a little more conservative, maybe, in, absolutely. in Belgium. So Belgium Dutch. is more conservative. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They're yeah. far more reticent being yeah. farmers, yeah. whereas the Dutch are merchants. The merchants, they've they, been traveling. That's interesting, too. So the Dutch really are famous for their uh, the Dutch East India Company and Henry Hudson and all of this small country, great power, great merchant marines. And in Belgium, you've got more of a farming heritage. And when you're in Belgium, you've got some great beer. <laughs> Absolutely, but I really think that Ferdi is the one to talk about beer, not me. <laughs> Ferdi is the one for beer. Ferdi, I, last time I was in Belgium, I met, in Bruges, I met these beer pilgrims. Oh, I wow. met so many people from America going over to Belgium oh, yeah. just to drink the beer. Well, they have beer tours now. You know, you do you do a beer tour, you, you, you sign up for a tour, you can go, for example, let's give you an example, Antwerp, just a city up in the north. They do beer tours in the city where you can go to authentic bars where you stand still on a 16th, 17th century floor, like a wooden floor, and you drink at the glasses you know, they've been using for centuries, and you have a guide who's a beer guide, explains how they made the beer and, and who drank the beer. And they're evangelical that about it. They yeah. love it. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's, it's, it's a beer. I went to these. The restaurants are quite expensive, but you go to a little pub, and you're surrounded by this centuries-old ambiance and coziness. Yes. And you feel, you feel like you're drinking... In the middle of a Vermeer painting. It is, yeah. It's like a, a scene out of a it's, painting. It's a scene out of Vermeer with a very nice beer. <laughs> and yeah. don't forget, one of those heavy monastic beers, you don't just drink down, you linger over it. We say, we do a terrace. That's how we say it. Let's do a terrace. And it generally means that you drink one of those heavy monastic beers, always with promising titles like Judas, yeah. um, Duval, 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 Devil, yeah. or the Forbidden Fruit, which forbidden is one of fruit. my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that's like that. And you linger over that. You don't just drink no, two, three down very quickly. It's yeah. an evening's entertainment. Oh, yeah. It's a, mm. yeah. In, in the Netherlands, you know, th- these pubs are, are sort of great equalizers, and it's this warm and cozy gazellig. Is that a, is that a gazellig, word? Gazellig, yes. Gazellig in, in Flemish? Great, yes. Gazellig, this coziness in your... And you got the, the rich boys and the poor boys and the farmers and the lawyers oh, and yeah. everybody right thing. there enjoying this great And don't beer. forget, every beer has its own glass. Yes, that's yes. very so important. So presentation is very, very important. This is very important. Yeah, they will never serve you a duvel in a uh, verboden, verboden fruit glass uh, ever. It's always the original glass. Now, is there any reason for that or is it just simply tradition? It's a religion. It's a, religion. It's, it's a religion. It's a status. I can't drink yeah. a Stella, yeah. a Stella Artois beer, without the right Stella glass. Yeah, you you can't. It you just tastes can't. different. It's, you're right. Yeah. And, and even uh, a simpleton, when it comes to beers, he catches into that when they're traveling. And that's a very nice thing to do, is to appreciate these fine points of the drinkable culture. As I walk along the street with my mayonnaise and feet, you can tell I'm as happy as can be. 
must understand I'm a Belgian, so nothing worries me But for Decker, it's great to be a Belgian I'm not English, I'm not French, and I'm not Dutch I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves We're traveling through the Low Countries And uh, to be honest, we're ignoring Luxembourg on this interview And we're talking about Belgium and the Netherlands I'm joined by Nina Derricks and Ferdinando Mengi And our phone number is 877-333-7425 you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And David is on the line from Nashville, Tennessee. David, thanks for your call. My pleasure. Goedemiddag to your guest. Hey, goedemiddag. Goedemiddag. My wife and I spent 12 years in Europe, including five and a half years in the Netherlands and three months in Belgium. And uh, we've been back 15 years now in the United States, but we've decided to start hosting groups in Europe with the idea of promoting what we call cultural intelligence among Americans, and uh, we're taking a group to London, Paris, and Amsterdam, each for one week, and uh, of course we have our ideas about Amsterdam having lived there for several years, but wondering if your guests could recommend some, maybe just two or three day trips out from Amsterdam. Well, there is so much to see in that area, and uh, the, the nicest part about being there is that you don't have to drive all that far to see things. So you don't have to think about, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to make it. I have to drive like four or five hours. No, it's very near. There's all kind of things. For example, Arnhem is as far as I would say the Open Air Museum. It's a, a good hour drive from Amsterdam. You it's have the, the North Pole. Open Air the Folk open Museum air, in Arnhem. In Arnhem, which A-R-N-H-E-M, is, you know. A-R-N-H-E-M. Yeah, it's like a good hour, hour and a half from there, which is very doable if you want to do it for a day. Now, that would be the the best Open Air Folk Museum experience, which is an uh, opportunity to see historic buildings from all corners of that country. Yes. And it's brought together into one park. Yep. So it's a it's living sort of cultural folk park. Wonderful uh, place to go visit. That's and then, the best. I, w- I would say that's the best serious sightseeing side trip. I would from say Amsterdam. that. That's why I mentioned One it, hour right? by train or yeah, car yeah. to the east. east. What's another side trip, Ferdy? I would say go to the Zanseskans, for example, which you have all the windmills, which is not that far from Amsterdam. You can do it like in half an hour or so, 45 minutes. Beautiful setting also with kind of a typical farm, and but especially windmills. Buses leaving probably two oh, times gosh, an hour yes, from the yes, train station yes, in Amsterdam. Easy. Quite a, quite a touristy place, but you do get to check off all of your yeah. cliches from, yeah. from the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, what else? I would say nothing uh, distance-wise is far in Belgium or Holland at all. No. So really, even if you go to Antwerp from Amsterdam, fairly, what would it take? Would it take an hour but, and but a half? Tra- hour and a half. If you go by train, yes. it's an hour and a half. And Antwerp is a beautiful uh, Absolutely. And then you have to visit. I would say you got to check out the flowers. And there's the flower auction oh, hall in uh, in well, in Alsmeer. Alsmeer. And that's yes. right by Schiphol Airport. Yeah, that's only a 20-minute. So go right. there early in the morning and you'll see the biggest, what they say is the biggest building in Europe, and it's filled with flowers. Yeah, it's huge. And they have this fascinating auction going on where yeah. all over Europe, flower merchants are coming together here, getting their flowers, and then they ship them out. It's huge business. There's so much. We can sit here forever and talk about all the sites, and they just keep on popping in my mind. But you can see, but those three we just mentioned are, are great ones. David, does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. Now, did you say Alsmeer or Almere? For the Alsmeer, A A L. Because I remember there are two different cities. And yeah, you have Almere as well. My favorite single town outside of the giant city of Amsterdam is Harlem. If you want to make a home base, I just I think Harlem is again. It's one of those Vermeer painting sort of situations. That's a ten-minute ride by the train. Harlem is definitely on our list. I don't know if you've ever been to the Ten Boom House. Corrie ten oh. Boom, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, anybody oh. who's interested in The Hiding Place, it's an yeah. inspirational story yeah. from uh, World War II and the Nazis and the Jews hiding out and everything. Yeah. It's a beautiful experience. It's a, it's, a, it's a clock shop that actually doesn't like all the tourists coming in and saying, where's Corrie ten Boom's house? <laughs> but uh, upstairs was the place where the yeah. ten Boom family lived and helped uh, local Jewish people hide out from, from the Nazis. Exactly. And, and they did a heroic job and eventually... Weren't, weren't they yeah. discovered? And that oh, was yeah, a, a sort of a sad ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, several times a day, they give very charming, earnest one-hour tours yep. uh, in, English in English for people who want to visit that. Right. And also, I think it's good to gear it to our demographic. Like, if we have teenagers, several teenagers in our group, would you recommend anything different from what you've already said? Get those teenagers on bicycles. Because ah. in Holland, you are king of the road. You have cycling paths in the middle of roads, and you have priorities. Mm-hmm. So really, it's like being in China. Everybody's born <laughs> on a bicycle. Get them on there. Yeah. Go to any tourist office. They mm-hmm. have fixed routes, and let them take off. You know, when I go to Amsterdam, I go there every couple of years for four days to research. I rent a bicycle. I park it in front of my hotel, 
and it's my way of getting around. If I had a taxi provided to me for free, I'd tell him to go home. I'd rather bike in that yeah, town. Yeah, it is so fun to bike as just a practical way of getting around yeah. in Holland. I would argue it's faster than a car. You can yeah. get around where you want really comfortably. And if you want to be away from the city, you can go actually go to the North Sea. If you go to the, the beach area, you know, there's such beautiful bicycle paths and the polders mm-hmm. there and the, and the dunes, like we call them. And you can you can bicycle for miles. There. And there's and specific a, cycling roads really through cycling the back roads. door. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, David, yeah. take your kids on a bike tour out into the countryside from Amsterdam. That sounds like a great idea. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, David, thanks. Good luck on your trip. Thank you very much. Donkey Friendluck. Okay. Well, of course, they call the low countries the low countries because there's not many very big mountains there, right? No. They say you can stand on a chair and see from one end of the other yes. to the other country. Yes, yes, yes. In fact, the Dutch have this charming phrase they say, God made the world, but the Dutch, made we made Holland. We made Holland. Exactly. That's true, though. And there's mm-hmm. some serious work going on now in anticipation of rising sea level. Are they, are they making the dikes actually higher? Well, they're enforcing the dikes. And, and since now, global warming, we don't, still don't know 100% what the effect is on the world, but we have to be prepared. It takes years. To well, you guys saw what happened in New Orleans. Of course. And that was a levee problem. Yes. And you're surrounded by levees. Yes. So we learned, unfortunately, we learned from their mistakes. Most and of the Netherlands below sea level. Yep. One entire state reclaimed from below sea level, Flevoland. Flevoland, yeah. The, With Lelystad as the, as the city there. I the, think the, one-fifth is reclaimed. The oh, yeah, Holland. The people in Flevoland are older than the land they live on. <laughs> yes, Incredible. it is actually. It's amazing. And as a traveler, you can actually experience this. You can go to museums that talk about reclamation. Oh, gosh, yes. They explain everything out there. It's such beautiful museums where they really uh, What's make the best clear. place to learn about the, the whole... Um, Engineering of holding back the you sea. You go to Delta Works, you know. The Delta Works, the Delta tell Delta me about Works. that. Remember when, when 1953, when they had this big flood, 1,800 people died overnight because they didn't expect the lineup of the of the planets and so forth. And then this, this high water just, uh, I was there recently, and it's amazing what they created there. Uh, so the Delta Works, this is where all these rivers that eventually become yeah, yeah, the Rhine the, River the ended Rhine, up. Yeah, the Moss, and they all come together. So really, so if you look at the Delta map of the, area, yeah, dumps the Delta into the area, and it's just, can you imagine, think about, we're just going to close off the North Sea. I mean, think about it for an instance. It's like amazing. And they did it. And it's working great with the... Um, it's, a, it's a determination. And it, it, it's part of the character of the Dutch people to yes. take care of their land. They live very densely together. Look in the world. All the works that's been done by water. For example, in Tokyo, that airport that's built on the water, is built by the Dutch. Is that really? right? Oh, yeah. If you want to have some land made Rick, somewhere, call the Dutch. If you want to get some swamp land and turn it into dry <laughs> yes. land, give the Dutch a call. Absolutely. They are fantastic engineers. And Matt's on the phone in Chicago. Hi, Matt. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Really appreciate your program. Uh, my wife and I actually traveled to France a few months back and decided to take a little trip for three or four days up to Belgium. It turned into six days because we had such a wonderful time. Uh, and, of course, we visited Brussels and Bruges. But one area that we stopped over and ended up spending two and a half days in, and it was kind of a surprise to us, was Ghent. And Ghent, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it, it really has some wonderful sights and a great culture to it. So I'm curious kind of uh, your, your uh, guest feelings on Ghent. Um, I would highly recommend it based on the sights. It's kind of a grittier version of Bruges, uh, if you will, to university town. But there's beyond even the adoration of the Mystic Lamb, which is the one main site that a lot of people know about. I think there's a, a lot of neat stuff to do. Um, and then if there's any other cities like that around uh, the Belgian countryside that would be suggested, uh, my wife and I can't wait to get back. And to give a context to this, of course, Brussels is the capital, and you got to see that. And Bruges is everybody's favorite, beautifully preserved medieval town in a fanciful kind of way. And Matt, you hit it right on the nail. Ghent is sort of a big, rough version of Bruges with one great medieval altarpiece to see. Uh, Nina, any other thoughts on Ghent? Yes, I think in Belgium, Ghent is often overlooked. I think Bruges is like a living museum, um, and it's wonderful to wander around in its little streets, but Ghent is a city with a fantastic history, equally great as Bruges, but it's a very much a living, buzzing town today. Yes. And I like nothing more than wandering around in the streets of Ghent, and mm-hmm. you just automatically get drawn into its cafes and its mm-hmm. fish market. It's fantastic. It's yeah. about 250,000 people, yeah. but you really feel this city is buzzing today with yes. a rich history behind. And much as I love Bruges and everybody's got to go to Bruges, to be honest, it's a tourist trap. I mean, it is, its whole industry of is course. tourism. Love Bruges. Everybody is taking care of the tourists. You'll mm-hmm. pay probably double to stay in, totally in, in Bruges yeah. than in Ghent. Yeah. And Ghent probably gets one out of one hundredth of the tourism. Of course. And it's a real city.
Yeah, it, it is really a magnificent city, and there's, you know, you hear Prague is the city of a thousand spires, but as we looked at our hotel room, there's spires everywhere. There's four or five churches that rise up in the Belfort. My wife and I stumbled onto the Opera House and found day of, of the event seating, and I think it only cost us like seven or eight euro a piece. Now, of course, we were up in the rafters, but go see the Opera. All right. Good advice, Matt. Thanks for your call. Take care. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Belgium and the Netherlands with Ferdinando Mengi and Nina Derricks. Ferdi and Nina, we'd stumbled onto that word earlier, gezellig. It's a Flemish word, and Flemish would work in, uh, in the Netherlands and most of Belgium. Yes. And uh, gezellig is that unique coziness. Let's just close with an image. If you could both share with me something particularly gezellig about your homeland that travelers would want to be sure to connect with. I would say the hospitable people we have, the hospitality we have, uh, we are very inviting. I don't want to focus totally on English-speaking people or Americans, but Nina knows as much as I do. We all love to speak English. I mean, you go into a bar or go to a restaurant, they all want to listen to you. They want to tell how wonderful we are, how great our food is, for example. And yes. Also, our restaurants, our bars are gazelle. That's They're gazelle. Cozy. Definitely. That's gazelle. That's it. I can and being the, together is gazelle. Maybe the most gazelle atmospheres to eat. That's gazelle. Are for in, us. in Flanders, yeah. 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 Or linger behind one of those beers, and then you really get people talking. Yes, uh, and right. then they start yes. talking and, and eating. And then you can and... ask about where do you think I should go and eat. Don't look into those, all those Michelin <laughs> guides and no. uh, recommendations for restaurants. Talk to the local people local. and you really will get them going and you'll end up in their favorite restaurant. And how more Belgian or Dutch can you get? That's a gazellic place. They will show you definitely a gazellic spot. Perfect advice. Dank Nina Derricks and Ferdi Mengi. That should be free. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, You'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.